So we're trying to, we're getting a plan here of how this is all coming together in this class between closing out 2 Kings in Israel after David and closing out the Psalms so we get them all to end, trying to get them to all, all to end at the end of a month. So we'll, we'll see how that works. I've been encouraged to do that so when we start the series on heaven, it'll be at the beginning of a month, which will either be May or June. But, so this week, we are going back to 2 Kings. We are in Psalm 139 next when we do that. But we're back to 2 Kings starting in chapter 20 today. Now, what happened right before this, that we talked about um, Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh's uh, Claim that they were going to come and they were going to seize Jerusalem and to pay tribute and all this. And Hezekiah went to the Lord. Isaiah came to him and said, God will bring you the victory. And God did by killing 185,000 of their soldiers in one night. And they left and went back to Nineveh. And that is where we left it up. Where, where we ended, uh, I think, on February 12th. We, we, we were there. So in 2 Kings 20, we begin in, with these words. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. That's a sobering message. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked with you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly so the first thing we know is that the sickness of Hezekiah was one serious and two it would have resulted in his death quickly without divine intervention he is literally sick to the point of death and because of this condition Isaiah comes and says set your house in order you got a little bit of time to get everything organized. What that involved, I don't know. For us, get a will, de-junk your house, de-junk your house, de-junk your garage, de-junk your storage unit, you know, all that stuff. But it, it, you know, set it in order. Get ready because you're going to be dead soon. Now, as a king... This would have been more critical than it would have been for a non-royal person. Because, you know, the king has different responsibilities. Who's going to do this? I mean, how, how all that works. You know, it's a little different than if you just went to a guy down the street. Because the affairs of the nation were at stake. And the news hit Hezekiah extremely hard. And it sent him to God in prayer and supplication. He said he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Now the wall mentioned here is not a wall of the temple, but a wall within the palace. And 
Why he turned to the wall is conjecture. You know, it wasn't like, you know, sending your kid to the corner and look at the wall for a while because he was bad. Um, we don't know. He might have turned to the wall for privacy. He wanted to be alone. He wanted to talk to God by himself. We don't know. But the prayer ends in strong weeping in verse 3. He was extremely distraught. And possibly, and I would say probably, the reason for Hezekiah's strong reaction to that. Okay, back to where we were. He ended extremely distraught in verse 3. And possibly, and like, like I said, probably the reason for that strong reaction is because Hezekiah had no heir. There was no son to take the throne. Because Hezekiah, as we're going to find out, he will live for 15 more years. And his son Manasseh was 13 when he began to reign. So he put the math together and go, yeah, he didn't have a son. And so that being said, I think we can say that Hezekiah's concern was not just for a, merely a longer life for him, but for his line to continue. And that was a big deal in those days. And then in verse 4, we read, And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs. And he let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. So God provides an answer through Isaiah. And so Isaiah went to Hezekiah with full authority from the living God. I just you know, think about that, you know. It's hard for me to under, you know, to, to grasp that. Isaiah had full authority from God. And it's interesting that God was willing to change his what we were told was his original intent. Not that God changed his mind or changed his plan, but he sent this message to Hezekiah after he had heard Hezekiah's prayer. You can also see the timing of it. Sennacherib had not yet lost those 185,000 people. So this is not chronologically uh, set right after what we just covered in chapter 19. But Hezekiah is again assured that, I, that Assyria will not conquer Jerusalem. So again, we have another example of God hearing prayers of his people. Think for a minute of the comfort that Hezekiah must have felt knowing that God heard his prayer. And from Hezekiah's perspective at least, again from Hezekiah's perspective, God altered his previous message of putting his house in order. Yes? Is that 
that mean that that Syria is coming again, or is this referring back to the This is before the the 185,000 were killed. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing until you start looking at it and go, okay, you know, it's just you know, because we tend to think you know A happened, then B, and then C, and then D, and that's really not. This is overlapping time-wise or changing the time there. Now we don't have a prophet like Isaiah that will come to us and assure us it, that God has heard our prayers. Isaiah's not going to walk in here and say, hey, you know what? Jerry, God heard your prayer. This was your prayer and this is the answer to it. But we can be just as assured as Hezekiah that God hears our prayer. The following verses are examples that make it very clear to us. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will forgive. He is faithful. He is just. That means He hears them. Romans 8.26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And Philippians four, six to seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can be confident that the same God who heard Hezekiah's prayer hears our prayers. And that's just something to sit there and just park on for a while and be thankful that God hears our prayers. We don't have Isaiah to come and tell us the answer. We have the Bible. And we have the Spirit of God. Now it's interesting also that David is mentioned in the reason for the deliverance. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. David is mentioned to show that God remembered his promises to David that he would establish the kingdom forever. The end result of the revelation was that Hezekiah was going to recover from his sickness unto death. He's going to live for another 15 years. And from history, we know that Hezekiah would have a son that would be part of the messianic line. And we can read about that in Matthew chapter 1, where Manasseh was part of the Messianic line. Not only will he live for 15 more years, we're also told, I will defend this city for my own sake and for David's sake. These 15 years will be a time of safety from the Assyrians, and Jerusalem will not fall into its control. That's quite an answer to prayer. And then in verse 8, we go on. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I shall go up to the house 
of the Lord on the third day. And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing he has promised. The shadow Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. So in verse 8, we see that Hezekiah asked for a sign from the healing. And that Isaiah readily complies to that shows that this is not a request out of unbelief. Perhaps he knew of his father Ahaz's. Ahaz was Hezekiah's father, and Ahaz was not a good guy. And remember, Ahaz refused to ask God for a sign in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 to 13. And that's when God provided the sign in verse 14, behold, the Lord will give you a, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Hezekiah knew of that, I'm sure. So this narrative is also found in Isaiah chapter 38. Verses 1 to 21. Very similar narrative. The sun went backwards. This was shown by either the markings on a sundial or more likely a scale of steps that they used to measure time. It was demonstrated that God gave a true sign of his power and control over nature. Now that's quite a sign. For Hezekiah, because it would confirm God's power over what? Over nature. God was also taking away Hezekiah's sickness unto death, which showed his power over nature. It's another indication that God has control over the forces of nature. And as you probably would expect, Some commentators really struggle with God changing the rotation of the earth or something similar to cause the shadow to go back 10 steps. Now, how how much is 10 steps? I don't know. But it's more than just a second. I mean, there's something that would be very noticeable. Adam Clark wrote, The miracle might have been wrought by the occasioning of this extraordinary refraction rather than by disturbing the course of the earth or of any other celestial bodies. So it's kind of like a mirror, so I don't know, refraction, how that would have happened. Matthew Henry wrote, whether this retrograde motion of the sun was gradual or suddenly, whether it went back at the same pace that it used to go forward, which would make the day 10 hours longer than usual so he's saying that one of those steps is an hour or whether it darted back on a sudden and after continuing a little while was restored again to its usual place so that no change was made in the heavenly bodies we are not told so they're trying to figure out how this all worked right this other Uh, website called christiananswers.net said 
God may have temporarily reversed the earth's rotation, including all its inhabitants, or the miracle in Hezekiah's day could have been local instead of worldwide. Now, I don't know how that would work. Okay? This, this uh, other group, biblical hermeneutics, said speculation involves that the earth rotated backwards or pivoted on a different axis. Why would we look for a naturalistic mechanism when the text says God did it is beyond me? Both, all of these speculations carry massive geological upheavals if they occurred naturalistically. God would have had to miraculously cover these effects since there is no record of it, of of these massive upheavals. It goes on. A better speculation is that time is not continuous but quantized. Existence can be can change between one quantum state and another without having to pass through supposed intermediate states. If every moment is a newly created quantized state in the mind of God, then the blink of a thought, He can do this as He wills. Basically, they don't have a clue. And we don't have a clue. They're trying to figure it out. And I get trying to figure it out. You want to know how it works, right? Well, how did the virgin birth work? Go ahead. I think it was, as his point was, rewind for 10 seconds. For someone who created the world, the universe, with his word, he could do it. How's it look? I don't know. I remember hearing people said, and I, I thought at the time, and I've heard it again, well, you know, the earth is 10 hours behind in the atomic clock. How in the world do you know that? Right. I mean, I'm going, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, who knows? But one large stumbling block to many is the difficulty they having believing that God can and does act in an open system. A closed system means that there can be no outside influence on the world other than the natural forces of nature. That's a closed system. Then all the all most of the scientists would say we live in a closed system. Of course, then they have the evolutionary thing to figure out, which is a problem, but that's something different. But they choose this closed system as one of the reasons to believe in evolution. And even why many Christians adopt the idea of a theistic evolution. In a closed system, it is a struggle to believe in passages such as this one, and they regard the account as just legend. Beware of taking anything out of the Bible and saying that it could not have occurred or it did not occur. There's lots of examples you know, how the Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. Or some people say the Sea of Reeds, which was just a swamp. Well, then you got a big problem with the drowning, right? A virgin birth, the water in the desert when they were, uh, you know, and manna. You can go on and on and on. Jonah and the fish. Uh, you know, somehow... 
People think they can believe in God as a cosmic force that somehow started everything, but then they have very diff- a very difficult time believing that God has chosen to impact his creation as he wishes. You know, Eastern religious thought is particularly strong in the stance that God, however they define him, does not interfere with the natural world. The natural world is God. Deism would hold to this viewpoint. But if you analyze or as you analyze the claims of Scripture, we see that often God has chosen to live in an open system, not a closed system. There's a lot of examples. Creation. The plagues of Egypt. Try to figure those out in the closed system. I, I've actually read somebody who tries to use a closed system to tell about how the plagues happened. And it all ties into a volcano that interrupted in Greece or something. That erupted. I said interrupted. That erupted in Greece about the time and you know, the, who knows how about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fire furnace hmm. the virgin birth the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of the disciples there lots of examples of God working in an open system you know but probably and even though we can we can we can talk about those and that's good Another critical place that God works in creation is the resurrection of the saints in heaven. If God can't work in that system, then we're not going to be raised. So what you do is you, when you have a problem over here, you create this ripple effect that ends up having a total mess. Simply turning back the sun is easy work for an almighty living, all-powerful God. And demonstrating the power over the Son also shows God's total command of the physical world. And Hezekiah's sickness was physical. And God has the power as well as the uh, choice or is free to work within within his creation any way he wants to work. Now going on, the next thing we see is in verse 12. At that time, of 2 Kings 20, at that time, Barodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the houses of armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Not a good idea. Verse 14, Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And so Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house 
There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. This is an interesting story, but it has implications, as we'll see. It appears that the embassy from Babylon was appealing to Hezekiah because of the danger of the Assyrians. Remember, the Assyrians were still out there. Again, this event is not chronologically placed after the invasion of Sennacherib. It's actually before. Now, the name, this, this Merodach Baladin, you know what his name means? A rebel. Or not the Lord. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't probably call my child one of those names. Hey, rebel, come here. You know. But that's what his name means. And throughout Scripture, Babylon represents the arch enemy of God. Satan, the god of this world. This Merodach Baladin elevated Babylon to a position. Historically, he elevated Babylon to a position to threaten and eventually overthrow the Assyrian dominance in the Middle East, in the Near East. He led Babylon during, during two periods, 721 to 710 B.C. and then again from 703 to 702 B.C. Now in 710, Sargon, another Babylonian leader, ousted him, but in 702 B.C., the Assyrians defeated Sargon. And after this defeat, Merodach Baladin continued to his revolt against Assyria and got back into dominance of Babylon. And this seems to have been the motivation for cultivating Hezekiah's friendship because they knew that Judah and Jerusalem was opposing Assyria. So he cultivated that friendship by sending letters and a present when he heard of Hezekiah's recovery. It's interesting to me that they even knew about it. This wasn't hidden. People knew that Hezekiah was dying and God preserved him and he recovered. It reached all the way to Babylon. Who at the time, Babylon was a small little insignificant power. They weren't big. In Jerusalem, the appearance of the envoys brought joy to the city. They resorted to their old ways of seeking alliances and forgot that God was their only deliverer. It may have looked to the residents and to Hezekiah, hey, this is an opportunity to give me more strength against the coming Assyrian army. But everything without exception was shown to the Babylonians. That's massive. And it was an extremely large horde that they had. But soon, Sennacherib was going to come and take it all away that we covered in 2 Kings 18, where Hezekiah paid all this tribute to Sennacherib. So all this stuff that he was showing the Babylonians all went to Assyria anyway, before they got there. But it demonstrated pride and foolishness, opening all this information to the Babylonians. Everything. This, here's my weapons. Here's all my money. Here's all my spices. Here's all the good stuff we have. 
Now, Babylon did share Judah's antagonism toward Assyria, but showing that Babylon's wealth and military resources shows that Hezekiah had a strong desire to create another ally against Assyria. They also demonstrated a lack of trust in God for safety. And he placed his trust with a pagan nation, Babylon. Now, Hezekiah had the opportunity to show Babylon how great God was and how great God provided. Don't show him any of that stuff. How are you, how are you providing? God did this. God did this. God did this. God did, but they didn't show him that. Instead, he glorified himself to prove to the Babylonians that he was a worthy partner for a coalition. And we also have no indication that Babylon was interested in an alliance. I have been, but we don't know. Second Chronicles 32, 27-29 tells us that Hezekiah had exceeding riches. And a lot of it was what was left from David and Solomon's reign. What probably happened, as I'm thinking through this, and other people, is that Hezekiah planted the seeds for Babylon to lust after the riches of Judah. They went back and go, hey, there's a real treasure trove there. It could have been a material factor in Nebuchadnezzar's desire to conquer Judah, hoping that he was going to take this great wealth as spoils of war. The very thing that Hezekiah hoped would sell his request for an alliance may have created an enemy. An enemy in this case that God would allow to conquer the land and take its people hostage. In the years to come, it was Babylon that would come and take the city. I can just sit there and imagine as the Babylonians went back the lust that would begin to build in their minds as they saw the wealth of Judah. And I imagine as they told those stories, like every other story, it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And later, Nebuchadnezzar would act on some of that. Now after these events, Isaiah came to Hezekiah. How Isaiah found out about him, we don't know. It doesn't matter. But Isaiah knew what Hezekiah had done. And so God instructed Isaiah to act, and he gave Hezekiah a specific message beginning in verse 16. This is one of those visits that, you know, before when Isaiah came and said, hey, I got the word of the Lord, he's going to lengthen your life 15 years, and that, you know, boy, that's a great message. This isn't one of those where you're called into the principal's office to get an attaboy. Right? Verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, they will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the kings of Babylon. 
Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, It is not so if there will be peace and truth in my days. So Hezekiah has told everything that he had taken all this pride in is going to be gone. Everything that he's shown to Babylon is going to be gone. Nothing is to be left. All of those things that you've had your pride in and your glory in are lost to the very people you're boasting to. Now the actual falling of Babylon will take place in the reign of Zedekiah, which is going to be 60, 70 some odd years later. Again, it's not next week this is going to happen. And they're recorded in 2 Kings 24, and we'll get there. 2 Kings 25, 2 Chronicles 36, and Jeremiah 20. Now again, I said this once, is one interesting thing to note is that at the time of this proclamation of Isaiah, Babylon was an insignificant power. In fact, they were going to be conquered by Assyria before they were going to rise to a world power. Even those individuals who came to Israel would be so controlled by Assyria. So Hezekiah most likely had a hard time believing that Babylon could possibly be a threat to them. Assyria was the great enemy in the world. And Babylon was 500 and some miles away. But it's absolutely clear that God did not like the actions of Hezekiah. And his actions were significant in God's sight. They weren't a trivial slip. They showed a propensity to trust in yourself rather than God. Yes? I'm getting more confused. He's showing them all these riches. Hadn't he given all that stuff away? He hadn't given it to, to Sennacherib yet. Oh, that's the whole chapter. Yeah, yeah. It, even though it's recorded before, it's stated here. Yeah, it gets confusing. And I had to sit there and read through it a couple times myself. Yeah. And we and we found too that Hezekiah did have, you know, after he gave Assyria all that tribute, there was more stuff that came back. You know, they he started growing some some riches back, not to not to the extent that they had at one time. Now, verse 18 also mentions Hezekiah's sons. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away. Remember, at this time, Hezekiah had no heirs. But God is telling him that you will, but hey, guess what? Your sons aren't going to have, you know, ice cream and caviar all day long. They're going to have a tough deal. And that will be taken when they become subject to Babylon. And if you want to read Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28 talks about a people coming in and taking them captive if they didn't obey God and follow God. So this is a fulfillment of, again, of Deuteronomy 28. It's, the fulfillment of this is also mentioned in Daniel 1, 2 Chronicles 33, and 2 Kings 24. Now the interesting thing too, and sad in a sense, is when Hezekiah hears these words, he says, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. 
He knew Isaiah was a prophet of God. And Hezekiah responds with humility, but selfishness. He didn't turn to God in repentance. He should have. Would God have done something different? Who knows? Didn't happen. But he responded with this extreme selfishness. He understands that this prophecy will at least mean that there's going to be peace in the land while I reign. So as long as I'm around, everything is going to be good. But he understands that this prophecy is not going to last. His self-centeredness does not show a large concern about the people, the future people of Judah. As long as he was secure in his lifetime, that was what mattered to him. That's pretty short-sighted. There is no final comfort to Hezekiah knowing what's coming. If you know that's coming, if you know your children or your children's children are going to have that, I don't know how much comfort you could have. We have read in other scripture passages that God will come and establish his everlasting kingdom of judgment and of peace and justice. But for Hezekiah, it wasn't here and it wasn't now. A lot of other things, including a captivity and great sorrow, will come first. So in looking at Hezekiah's actions overall, in 2 Kings chapters of 18, 19, and 20, we see him both as a person who responded in humility to God, and God rewarded him with that, with an extension of his life, extension of his family line, We also see his prideful actions to Babylon and his selfish response to the coming judgment of God against his people and his nation. And I was thinking about that, and we all struggle with this, and we will, but we need to continue struggling with it, but we need to think about it, is consistency is one thing we need to strive for in our walk with God. We are all inconsistent in some areas of our life and our walk. We can trust God in an exemplary way in tough times. On the one hand, but be very prideful and not trusting in other times. Hezekiah's life should be an example to be consistent in our walk. The only, uh, and this is only capable, we can only do this by nurturing our relationship with God through prayer, through study, through proper actions, through helping each other and supporting each other so we can have a consistent Christian walk. Hezekiah did some good things. You know, when we first introduced to him, he followed God. He got rid of a lot of bad stuff. The other thing we can learn from this is the frailties of human leadership. Whether a king, a pastor, a Christian leader, a parent, we are all prone to inconsistencies. Our trust and our focus need not be in a pastor or in a national figure or in anything else. Our trust and our focus must be in God himself, who is consistent, who will never change or waver. And we read that in Malachi 3.6. Now, the last statement about Hezekiah is found in verse 20. 
Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh, his son, became king in his place. We have time to peek at Manasseh. Manasseh and his son Ammon have a wicked reign. We see this in 2 Kings 21. It's interesting, we start out in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Remember, Hezekiah's life was was extended 15 years. So Manasseh was young. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hepzibiah probably said that wrong verse 2 and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations who the Lord drove out before the people of Israel for he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed and he erected altars for Baal and made the Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done Ahab isn't the guy that you want to emulate right and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars on the house of the Lord, which he said, In Jerusalem I put my name. And he built altars for the hosts of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. Oh, good idea. And used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved the image of the Asherah that he had made, that, that, that he had made set in the house of the Lord. So he put the Asherah in the temple itself. And it said, set in the house of the Lord. David, the Lord said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So that's what Manasseh did. Verse 8, but they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So remember, when Israel went into the land, they destroyed these pagan nations. Right? Well, Manasseh caused Judah to do more evil than those pagan nations that they had driven out. And he did that evil for 55 years. Now, part of that reign appears to be a co-regency with his father, Hezekiah, for the first, you know, when he was three, he was co-regent. I don't know what in the world he did. But, you know, but he would be learning from that. But he didn't even try to follow his father's example. He did evil in his ungodly actions. He reigned from 697 to 642 B.C. and Hezekiah died in 687 B.C. So when Manasseh was all by himself in, 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 in the reign, he was about 22. And it was about 681 when Sennacherib tried to take the city and went away. So that was in the middle when Manasseh was a child. And when, while Sennacherib was gone in 681, uh, Assyria was still a strong power in the world. 
And we know from Second Chronicles 3 that Manasseh rebelled against Assyria at least once. He was, uh, according to this guy who wrote this book, A History of Israel, John Bright, he said that he was, Manasseh was a loyal vassal of Assyria throughout his long reign. Esharadon, who was Sennacherib's son, listed Manasseh among 22 kings who were required to bring building materials for Assyrian building projects. And he was also named as one of the vassals who helped Assyria in attacking Egypt. So he, even though Assyria hadn't conquered them, he was still a vassal state. And we have more uh, detail on a portion of the reign of Manasseh in Second Chronicles 33, 10-13. And here it says, and the reason we're going here because there's one part in here that I think is pretty interesting that we need to know about Manasseh. In Second Chronicles 33, 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Okay, not Nineveh, Babylon. And when he was in distress, that had to be a nice uh, uh, road trip, by the way. 500 miles in hooks and chains. And when he was in distress, he, Manasseh, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So Manasseh knew about God. He must have known about his father's faith and commitment. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, it says in this passage. It's interesting to me that God heard his plea and responded and brought him back to Jerusalem, knowing that his heart wasn't there. We don't have any of the details on it. But in the long term, whatever happened did not keep Manasseh from going down his path of evil in worshiping other gods. You know, there are a lot of people who follow what it says in verse 13. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. There are a lot of people today that know about the God of the Bible. They know about him. They know he's God. They may even know that he is the only true God. But that does not mean they follow him. It does not make them true believers. There are those who are ministers, who have been around the Bible, even trained in it and trained others in it but they are not two Christians as you listen to what they say or they teach a lot of them remind me of what we read here about Manasseh they know who the Lord is but they also follow the other gods of the world system which is what Manasseh was doing I'm following Baal and the Ashtoreth and necromancers and mediums and that, that. Oh, and I'll follow God too. And we have a lot of people today try to do the same thing. They know. They can answer questions. It does not make them believers. And we have to be very careful 
that we don't follow false teachers that do that kind of stuff because they're out there. And they're, it's very easy to be out there now with the Internet and with YouTube and all the stuff that you can look, you can find these people any, anywhere, and many of them have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers. There's one guy in Nigeria that is absolutely disgusting. Millions of followers, millions. And he's fleecing these people like you can't believe. I can't remember his name, which is good. I don't have to dream about him at night. But there's lots of others, too. It's kind of like Jim said this morning when he was in India. In, in mm-hmm. India and they believe that God's just another God. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just add him to the pack. Mm-hmm. I remember people that went to uh, Indonesia had that same issue. Oh, yeah, we'll accept him. Boom. And they just pile him on. Okay, where was I here? Verse 14 of Second Chronicles 33. Another thing of what Manasseh did. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. You're thinking, oh, that's good. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving and commanded that Judah serve the Lord, the God of Israel. So he knew some stuff. But then it says, nevertheless, oh, be careful of those kind of words. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So they were worshiping God in the way they wanted to worship God, not the way God prescribed. Now, going back to 2 Kings, chapter 21, verse 10, we read this. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, the king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Notice in verse 11, Manasseh did things more evil than all the than even the Amorites did. Now, the Amorites were highlanders, were a wicked people who one time, at one time occupied the land of Canaan. And they engaged in all sorts of ungodly, religious, unnatural worship, including sexual perversions in worship and murder and oh, just gross stuff. Now Manasseh is worse, more evil than that. And then it says of what Manasseh did, similar to what other kings have done, he made Judah also to sin with his idols. And because of that, we see in verse 12 that God will judge with a disaster. God will judge with a disaster. Therefore says the Lord God, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. That's a vivid picture. 
And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become prey and a spoil to their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. The judgment is going to be severe. Judah will become prey and a spoil. Why? Because they were a weak nation? No. Because they did evil and forsook the worship of God. Now there's a parting comment on Manasseh's behavior. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we're not told what detail that is. The shedding of blood. Much shedding of blood. But according to the Talmud, Isaiah hid inside a cedar tree that was sawn in half by Manasseh. Early Christian writer Justin Martyr who wrote in about 130 to 140, 150 A.D., he stated that the saw used to execute Isaiah by Manasseh was made of wood. Well, that sounds good. But that's, what they, that's the tradition of what happened to Isaiah that Manasseh sawed him in half. But even if that's true, that's not the only victim of Manasseh's bloodthirsty actions. He he reigned 55 years, 45 of it by himself as the sole regent. What a horrid, horrible legacy to leave. And then we have the conclusion, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed are not written in the Chronicles, the books of Judah. And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house. A summary of the life of Manasseh is this, and we'll stop here. He worshipped idols in a manner like the surrounding countries who had been recovered from the land. He removed the high places, or he allowed the high places where the false worship was held to be restored. He reintroduced Baal worship in the Asherah. He used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He bowed down to the hosts of heaven. One commentator wrote there, said, There can be no question that the sun, the moon, and perhaps Venus were worshipped in Judah. He built altars to different gods and put them in the temple of the Lord. He sacrificed his son by burning him to probably Marduk. And he shed very much innocent blood. Well, one is a lot. Very much has got to be a ton. All this was done with him knowing that the Lord was God. What a horrid legacy to leave. But yet this guy's still in the messianic line. You know? God's mercy and God's grace is unbelievable. But let's just, I just need to remember, knowing that the Lord is God doesn't guarantee my actions are right. I need to stay in his word and be led by his spirit. Manasseh knew, but his life was pretty despicable. 
that movie Despicable Me. That's a cute little movie and funny, but this guy was truly despicable. Did evil in the sight of the Lord. How do we do evil? By not worshiping him and honoring him. Let's pray.